Welcome to season nine of Film is Lit. You know what would be funny? Hmm. What if the new theme song was... Honestly, it would be less funny and more intensely cool. Yeah. Because I was such a huge (laughs) fan of the score to this movie. The Oscar winning score by Vocal Bertelman. Wasn't that one of my answers that shot me into the that top of the Oscar pool? Oscar pool? I believe so. I think I also voted for All Quiet. Yeah, All Quiet and Score Having and Production Design. Having not even heard or seen the yeah. film. so Only on your research, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only based on my research. Yeah. Well, yeah, welcome to the pod. This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, he, him, the self-appointed film expert. And my name is Laura, she, her, and I'm the self-appointed literature expert. And we spoiled it. Today, we are covering All Quiet on the Western Front, written by Eric Maria Remark in 1929 and adapted by Edward Berger in 2022, released on Netflix. This is the third adaptation of this classic novel. The first was in 1930, a year after the novel came out, and that won Best Picture. It was one of the first Best Picture winners ever. It has stood the test of time, widely considered one of the best films ever made. And then it was adapted in 1979 into a TV movie, I haven't seen that, but apparently that's good as well. Although, how how much can you show it with war in a TV movie? First of all, you're not given a big budget. Second of all, you can't show gore. So that kind of defeats one yeah. of the purposes of showing it in a visual medium. And so. honestly, how much can you take? Yeah. I, I almost wonder if it would become a sort of underground railroad situation where it's almost like too much and you start to check out a little bit because it's just like okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean even the book which is fairly short is about as much as i could take yes of the like visceral trauma Mm -hmm. of world war one and so stretching that into a (laughs) multi-episode television show i don't know (laughs) i might i might start to lose my mind a little bit (laughs) agreed yeah definitely but this is the first adaptation from a german filmmaker starring german actors it should be stated that the other two despite this being a german story written from a german author they were american productions starring english yeah actors so there's that yeah yeah. (laughs) um yeah so that that adds some significance cultural significance uh this was an obviously an anti-war piece, and it kind of feels weird that the previous adaptations, even the 1930 Best Picture winner, does not star Germans, mm-hmm. and it's not in German. Yeah, so. and I have a comment about this that ties into my journey, though, so I'm going to hold it. Yeah. But I wonder if partially those things contributed to a misconception that I had about this book. Gotcha. Understood. Yeah, so... Before we get into our journeys, speaking of that, let's quickly bang out the synopsis. So, set during World War I, it follows the life of an idealist young German soldier, Paul Baumer. After enlisting in the German army with his friends, Baumer finds himself exposed to the realities of war, shattering his early hopes of becoming a hero as he does his best to survive. The film, this new film, adds a parallel storyline not found in the book, which follows the armistice negotiations to end the war. 
World War One. Yeah, World War One. <laughs> right. <laughs> and thirty years later, another one would erupt. Right. So yeah. there's that. Um, yeah. So let's go journeys with the piece. Lore, go ahead. Okay. So I have to start my journey in a very embarrassing way. <laughs> I have an admission to make. So <laughs> up until I found this book at Goodwill, like, luck of the draw. Like most of like the most of the things, books, but yeah. I but I found this book after this movie had come out and become a sensation, and also only a week before I was supposed to have finished this book. So I got really lucky with this. Um, How dare you! <laughs> I take this gift. podcast seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is so embarrassing. So I saw the book on the shelf. And I grabbed it. I saw A Quiet on the Western Front. I said, great. And then I saw Eric Maria Remark on the front. And I said, oh, I need, I need to make sure that this isn't a translation. <laughs> because all this time I thought that Ernest Hemingway had wrote this book. You son of a bitch. <laughs> no, he didn't. How fucking embarrassing is that? Like, I, I could not tell you where I got that idea Uh but as an english major i never read this book or throughout high school and it's on a lot of high school curriculums or at least was at least when our parents were in school um i i guess i guess we're (laughs) even because remember when we covered the scarlet letter yeah i thought i had read that and turns out i had read the crucible i don't know if you remember oh right okay I, i conflated yeah and i think i i also conflated the fact that Ernest Hemingway had served in World War One, right? And yeah. he has a lot of very similar titles of books, like The Old Man in the Sea, you know, and The Sun Also Rises. The Sun Also Rises. Yeah. I think both of those have this literary feel to them, definitely. And so I think that's why. But <laughs> I opened it, and thank goodness it was in fact a translation into English because this book was definitely written in German yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> by a German author. So um, the book is by Eric Maria Remark, and now I know that. <laughs> and that's really all I had to share. However, I thought it was also very interesting that this book was published about a year after Passing, or Passing came out in 1929 too. So these actually came out in, in the same year. Oh, wow, interesting. And I think because we just covered that, yeah. I started to I mean these are vastly different narratives. Yes. But there was something that I noticed that was a little bit of a bridge between some characters. And I think it's just interesting to think about the literature that was coming out at the same time. Because mm-hmm. if you think about the Harlem Renaissance, it feels like such an isolated movement. Right. But then at the same time, like World War One had just ended and you have a lot of these narratives coming out by veterans mm-hmm. who had just returned and family members who also had very raw loss and right. grief in their life. So I think it's just kind of interesting to remember that these books came out at the same time. Yeah. Both authors had intense trauma. Yeah. And it was in the days before PTSD was really studied and diagnosed. It was called shell shock, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's also kind of interesting to think about Nella Larson because she was a nurse. Now, I don't know if she served overseas. I didn't come across any of that when I was doing research into her life. Mm -hmm. But she 
would have run into a lot of similar situations that Eric Maria Remarque would have because mm-hmm. he also he did serve in World War One, so he went through a lot of the trauma <laughs> and situations that he talks about in the book as Paul. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting to think about all of these people living at the same time yeah. in vastly different regions of the world, and yeah. you know, privilege is different with these people. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to yeah bridge those two episodes that we just recorded. Amen to that. Yeah. Is that the end of your mm-hmm. journey? Cool. So <laughs> yeah, this was an embarrassing blind spot for me. I've always known that this was a classic piece of literature. It's been on the list of, you know, when we look for best book to movie adaptations, oh, yeah. the 1931 especially, but now after this one won all the Oscars, it's been like catapulted onto yeah. those lists as well. And I can't remember if my brothers read this book in high school, if they were mandated to read it, but I feel like they were. And I mm-hmm. feel like other classes were also uh, required to read this. I've talked about this before on the pod, but my history curriculum growing up in middle school and high school was there was kind of this weird blip where I, in, through eighth grade through 10th grade, I ended up taking U.S. history three years in a row. Mm -hmm. So I took U.S. history in eighth grade, and in ninth grade, most classes were taught world history. Yeah, that's what I took, yeah. And this is where this book was introduced, but the curriculum was changed. There's a new superintendent, and so in my freshman year, I took U.S. history again. Um, I had one of my favorite teachers of all time, uh, Mr. Ingraham. Shout Mm -hmm. out, Mr. Ingraham. Oh, I just met him last year. That's right. And then sophomore year, that's when you take AP U.S. history. So... Yeah. I feel, you know, a lot of times I tell this story and people are like, you know, high school, very important for the building blocks of one's uh, way of thinking and, and collecting knowledge. But it's I really feel deprived not having had that class. I feel like there are huge blind spots and just events in the world that I don't know about hmm. that I could have been introduced to in high school. So hmm. I'm glad I finally got around to this book. It was prompted for this podcast. Luckily... I had a lot of downtime at the stage in between shoots where I could listen to this book. And I gotta tell you, this isn't the best book to listen to while you're doing tasks. There's no real plot to it. It's all, it's meant mm. to evoke the, it's, it's meant to immerse you in World War One in the soldier's experience, which I think the movie does. We'll talk oh, about yeah. that. But it's certainly not a fun read, nor was it designed to be fun. Mm-hmm. It's really, so I had a tough time reading the book. But we had a great experience because since we live in LA, there's the Bay Theater. We've talked about this before. Yeah. This is a theater Netflix owns. It's run by Sinopolis, which is a chain. They specialize in the very comfy seats that recline all the way back and mm-hmm. you can get food delivered right to you. It's like the Alamo Draft House. And that not way, as good. Not as good. But, no, but it does have the same services. Yeah. But Netflix does not advertise this theater. It is a big hidden gem. We kind of like it that way because we can have the theater to ourselves sometimes. But we wish more people knew about it to support, not Netflix, but the theater going experience. Well, I'm nervous that they're going to have to sell it or something because they're not making their money back. The last time we saw something there was Glass Onion. And I talked about how much we enjoyed it, but it's concerning how empty it is every time we go. And, And we also talked about how they could be using the theater space so much more effectively because they could have a they could have a merch shop 
Yeah. They could have Q&As. As far as I know, they don't really host anyone there. Right. That is part of production. Yep. They could be doing a lot more with that space and they're just not. So I hope that it stays because... And Netflix of all companies, why wouldn't... They're so focused on promotion that why wouldn't they use in the biggest, arguably the biggest movie market in the world... Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Well, the other weird thing too is like, I know that they bought the Egyptian theater a while ago. And that, as far as I know, has gone silent. Mm -hmm. Like there are no events or showings there at all, which is also a huge disappointment because Danny and I have talked about this in the past, but we do not live near any movie theater within walking distance. That's not an AMC. That's not an AMC, which we don't go to (laughs) i don't support (laughs) we're not gonna get into it but (laughs) But, no but the point is like i don't know exactly who's running their marketing in terms of in-person events or Mm -hmm. theater going experience right and in our evaluation they're dropping the ball yes (laughs) so anyway that's a little bit of a rant but it it's more than a rant it's more of just a head scratching situation yeah i think because netflix is so huge yeah and it's been widely reported that they're losing money through subscribers right so again it's another reason why they should be leaning more into in-person events that are now open after COVID restrictions have been lifted. I don't know. Completely, Very strange. It's like it's almost right. like they've just forgotten that these cedars are there. Yeah. Strange. I don't know. Bizarre. Bizarre. <laughs> but to go back to our original point, if ever there was a movie that shouldn't be on streaming and should be seen in theaters, it's this one. I can't stress this enough. And we're not normally people who are like, you gotta only see movies in theaters. Streaming is killing the industry. No. No, especially not the agoraphobe over yeah. here. We love we <laughs> I, love streaming. Yeah, I don't like going to movie theaters. Yeah. So. However, this should have been distributed widely. Yeah. For most people to see this on the small screen, I feel like is a big disservice to Edward Berger and his team. If I may interrupt you, not only the small screen, but on small speakers, yes. because the immersion situation with (laughs) oh my god the score is so overwhelming and foreboding that i feel like you have to have the all around you sony yeah situation to really like feel it vibrate your bones immerse i mean the story is meant to be immersive and you can't be more immersed than being in a theater during especially during the battle scenes obviously it is harrowing it is intense it feels personal and speaking of personal they always say write what you know and that's exactly what eric maria did he based this novel off his own experiences as a german soldier in in world war one so he's not just making this stuff up this is it was one of the first anti-war accounts uh, to come out in wide release, I guess, if you could say, in literature. And it really kick-started the uh, retroactive anti-war movement because, of course, the war had already happened, uh, and he mm-hmm. wrote this years later. But this really opened the door for discussions of PTSD and uh, the futility of war and the downfall of, I guess you could say, the dick-swinging contests that was generals fighting for land in world war one well yeah i was gonna say maybe not the downfall because it happened 30 years later (laughs) and continues to happen there's a lot of dick swinging when it comes to the army and the military complex in general Mm -hmm. but it is interesting 
that one of the first things I noticed about this, because again, I was going in blind. I had not seen the movie. I'd never even read a summary of this book. The first thing that I wrote down in my notes was like, well, this is definitely not propaganda. No. <laughs> like, this no. is the opposite and of propaganda that would have been released during the first two world wars. Yes. I've seen a lot of comparisons to Saving Private Ryan, which I want to say I think is a better film and is also... Oh, than this one. Than this one. Oh, interesting. However, even though you know both films, Saving Private Ryan and All Quiet, are gritty and realistic, Saving Private Ryan does have a few instances where they show people as heroes and give you an underlying feeling of pride and like patriotism sometimes mm. it both are anti-war but there is some of that spielberg schmaltz mm-hmm. like respect the fallen here this movie just like the book is pushing the point that no these soldiers died stupid meaningless deaths mm-hmm. and the war it's a meat grinder yep. churned it removed their soul and created them into these lifeless killing machines and disposed of them. Mm-hmm. So there's none of that. This movie, this the book and movie avoids that sense of pride and patriotism at all costs. And the reason why I valued it being from a German filmmaker is because there is no more pathetic downfall in World War One mm-hmm. than the Germans. I mean, that's what the armistice was. And that's why, if we're going to one of the biggest differences between the book and the movie, that's why I valued the movie so much for adding the armistice subplot because not only did that add a ticking clock element to the story which in turn made it thrilling you, you see the soldiers and then you see the bureaucrats mm-hmm. that's another element of social commentary where the soldiers were starving and these politicians and generals were gluttonous and fat yeah. and in lavish trains and palaces so basically what i'm saying is this armistice subplot along with being a thrilling plot device, also highlights the point that this was a pathetic, desperate end for the Germans in World War I, which, again, was the thesis of Eric Maria Remarque's novel. Definitely. It also gave the opportunity for this movie to cast Daniel Bruhl, and I, don't, I think it might be against German law to have a movie that doesn't cast him in some (laughs) situation. No, he's so good. And he does actually play a real character, a real politician that was given the power to sign the armistice papers. So that was also like a really interesting piece of history that I didn't know because I don't know a lot about World War I. I actually did have to do a lot of research. Mm, Part of that is because we're not very used to land grab wars Mm -hmm. in modern times nowadays of course we are seeing this with russia in ukraine yeah but this i think world war one is a little bit harder to understand because it was just coming around this massive transition in time where there was still a lot of like empires in europe that were kind of crumbling and so they're all trying to reestablish sort of their glory days Mm -hmm. and we just don't really think in those terms anymore like we have countries especially in like the european union which seems so 
unified, I guess, in Mm -hmm. modern times and especially in our lives. Yeah. Because the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and we were born after that. I think like in our consciousness, like Europe has always been a fairly stable area of the world. And so I really had to do a lot of research to understand like why, (laughs) what, what went behind the start of this war. Um, And so I kind of appreciated the extra layer of history that was put into the movie as well, because the book is purely sort of in medias res. Yeah. You just get thrown in. You don't really get the conscription aspect as much. And you don't get the... um, Well, because the young kids actually... Paul is not even conscripted. He enlists... Because his other friends have been conscripted. Right. He forges, so his, he forges his dad's tragic. signature. Yeah. But I, I like the idea that this movie takes a step back to the beginning, right when they enlist, because I think it gives you this extra sense of doom. Agreed. And that it added that layer of real historical figures who were trying to negotiate the end of the war so desperately because it did get out of hand so quickly. Mm -hmm. I think like both of those things added drama. Not that the book doesn't have drama. I think that they just added a little bit more to justify how long the movie is and Mm -hmm. justify having people watching it in this contemporary age rather than during the 1920s where this was a little bit more raw and recent. Right. Completely agreed. And like, it, sorry, it, it almost feels like the book is still like processing, whereas the movie is more of a look back and analyze. Yeah, how with the hundred years of experience that we have now, looking back. Exactly. You yeah. know what I mean? I, Does that make sense? I would agree. And what I wrote down, I was trying to figure out why the movie felt so different from the book, despite it being basically the same exact story and beats. And what I wrote down is that the book is about soldiers who have already lost their souls to the war. Mm. They're drifting from day to day, living a meaningless life, and they're only there to die Mm -hmm. because they're not winning and they're not moving the Western Front at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. The movie is about soldiers losing their souls, Mm -hmm. right? Because you had mentioned that it starts with them enlisting, something that the book only covers in flashback. Paul talks about in the past how this one general Cantoric used propaganda to seduce them yeah. into the war. But in the in the movie, we barely see Cantoric only has one scene giving a rousing speech, and they're so happy. And my one of my favorite scenes in the film that's not a battle scene is that opening scene where they enlist, and they're all happy. Paul's character, played by Felix Cameron, is like, he's so excited he can barely take it. He's grinning and jumping up and down, and in the scene where they all put on their uniforms, they're all happy, but the score is blaring and it is ominous. And if ever there was a case of the undeniable influence of Christopher Nolan films and Denis Villeneuve films, it's this movie, Hmm. both in the visual language, but especially the score. I mean, the blaring that comes, that's straight out of like, Inception, straight out of, I would say, Arrival 2 with the late Johan Johansson's uh, score for that movie. And just the look, the the big wide open frames, landscapes, this movie really focuses 
just like Nolan and Villeneuve, on immersing you in the epic, daunting scale of a set piece. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really admired the opening of this film. And of course, I thought it was going to be like, okay, this is going to be like 25 minutes. We're going to go through the whole enlisting process. This is going to be boring. But the movie gets right into it. They're on the battlefield within minute... 20 20, so? yeah. yeah. Yeah, And another one of my favorite scenes, the very opening scene, it follows another soldier in media res. And you think you're watching a soldier following him through battle, but really you're watching a uniform. Yeah. And so he dies, and then that uniform gets thrown back in the pile, and that's the uniform Paul gets. So a great subversion of expectations, where you're actually not watching a person, you're watching an article of clothing. It ties into the theme that these soldiers were disposable. It's exactly what Remark was talking about, even though that part was not in the book. It makes perfect sense for it to be in the movie. Yeah, it's interesting that you make that distinction between how the book, you drop in on these off on these soldiers who have already lost their soul. And I feel like that's a reflection of Remark's mindset when he was writing this. Mm -hmm. Because having gone through that himself and also watching, I guess Germany wouldn't have necessarily been on the brink of starting World War II in 1929, but certainly feeling the economic destruction of Mm -hmm. World War II and the armistice and what that did to the country. He's already feeling, I mean, this is projection, of course, but he would already have gone through these experiences and would have been feeling that soullessness while he's writing. Whereas I think the movie, like you're saying, is coming from this, this contemporary perspective of looking back and putting these soldiers back into the context of where they would have been at different points during the war. And what I was struck with the very most when they're enlisting and they're going to report Mm -hmm. is how it's all framed as a game for Mm. young children to enjoy and to get that heroic story to come home with for later. And this is such a destructive narrative that's really effectively pushed by the older men who are either in the war or in positions of power like their schoolmaster. Yeah. Which is destructive and also irresponsible on so many levels. Right. But they know how young these kids are. And I really, really like how the movie leans into how young they look. They, They truly don't look like they've even ever shaved. Right. And they're giving each other a hard time about being scrawny and young and the excitement has clearly been stoked by something and again what i find so irresponsible about that and what the movie effectively demonstrates is that all of that came from a lot of men who fought who possibly didn't fight in a war number one but if they did they fought in a very different type of war yes where it would have been like bayonets and guns that probably shot five feet off their mark Mm -hmm. whereas now they don't even understand the type of conflict that they're sending these 18 year olds into with chemical warfare machine guns tanks things that did like we're talking about earlier turn the war into something completely different and that's why obviously i find it so irresponsible for these people in power to talk about 
patriotism and glory. Yeah. When they don't even know what they're talking about, you know. But right. but this is the only thing that these kids can look up to. So that feeling of it's just like play acting or it's a game is so clear in the beginning. And it's also like so devastating to juxtapose that with the foreboding music. Mm-hmm. It's just very, very effective. Yeah. And the only person who really understands that is Daniel Bruhl's character. Right. Which again, based on the real life man, Matthias Erzberger. Erzberger. Uh, <laughs> who I don't know if in real life this happened, but in the movie, his son died in the war. So he knows the effect. I think that is real. I, I think I read that. Yeah, I, I didn't do the research, but I... I I like that the movie includes that. And like all things with the movie, they don't belabor the point. It's just very matter of fact, and it is what it is. And I think it adds a good element to the story. And Daniel Bruhl, he he is the only person of that upper class who has lost something from the war. These other generals, like you said, they're not out there. Many of them have probably not even fought on the Western Front or on the battlefield. So they really have no incentive to change because they're being pampered uh, by being generals. And the only thing that's motivating too is that glory. Yes. Because they're not exposed to what's actually going on. And so all they see is the embarrassment of what Germany, quote unquote, is giving up. Right. And what I really love about the book, there's actually a very funny part about the soldiers talking about like, like, why are we fighting again? Like, there's this moment of rest, and mm-hmm. they're kind of joking about, like, oh, well, the, you know, the countries are, France is attacking us or something. And then one of the soldiers goes, I don't feel attacked, yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's that difference between who is experiencing what, right? who is, quote unquote, embarrassed mm-hmm. by what's resulting, and who's actually being, like, murdered or getting a an arm or a leg blown off. Exactly. That's very, very clear with the way that they depict the upper crust Mm -hmm. who's calling the shots. Right. So despite that not being in the novel at all, it really adds a new dimension that I think Eric Maria Remark would have appreciated. At the same time, I think a lot of novel purists don't like the film for those exact Mm. reasons because... The soldiers in the novel don't know about the armistice at all, mm-hmm. which I think is more true to real life. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, it keeps on cutting back, adding that ticking clock, but also adding some hope that the war will end. Mm-hmm. But I think Eric Maria Remark was trying to say that, no, there was no hope. Yeah. Like They didn't know an armistice was coming. The generals weren't telling them because that would have been embarrassing. So in a way, it could read as false for the movie to include Matthias's character. And that, so that's why I think the movie is oddly divisive because a lot of a lot of novel diehards don't appreciate these changes. Another huge change between the book and the movie. So there's an extended part midway through the book where Paul goes on leave and visits home. Mm-hmm. And that part of the book deals with the how he already has PTSD and he already feels like he doesn't know his own home because he is completely consumed by war. This reprieve, this break is absent from the movie. Yeah, I think they probably sacrificed it to include the upper crust mm-hmm. wheelings and dealings. I agree. And 
I think it's interesting because I think the narrative function of the home front scenes in the book is to kind of foreshadow that Paul is not going to make it through the book. Mm -hmm. Because usually in first person books, the narrator survives. Right. Or else you quote unquote, like wouldn't have the novel. Right. But Paul's feelings when he goes home are twofold. So first of all, he finds it really hard to connect with the people who haven't experienced the war like he has. Mm -hmm. And especially with his father, who just wants to know that he's fought hand-to-hand combat. Right. And he's like really interested in pushing that heroic narrative. Mm -hmm. So he finds it really hard to connect with those people. And on the other side, he finds it really hard to be away from his comrades because he knows that every day he's gone, they might be killed. Right. So I think like in that way, those scenes are meant to foreshadow that no matter what, Paul's going to be lost. Like if he survives, many, many, many veterans commit suicide. And that's still a situation that's endemic in the veteran community. Yeah. Is suicide due to survivor's guilt. Yeah. And so I think like that's the narrative function of those scenes in the book it almost gives readers a comfort that he dies almost like paul wouldn't have had any place anyway if he had survived so this nihilistic end for him is kind of like it's devastating but it's the right thing almost like that's how it makes me feel so in the movie i think they actually push an even more nihilistic narrative that he does not get this leave. Mm-hmm. So he might still have been fighting to get home. And perhaps if he showed up at home, he still might have had this feeling of he doesn't belong or right. or, or this feeling of survivor's guilt. But it's still so much more devastating. The fact that he's killed like 30 seconds before everything just stops the war is just done Mm -hmm. so i almost feel like the movie pushes this more nihilistic you know death of soldiers doesn't matter narrative agreed yeah Yeah. i would say the quiet in the title all quiet on the western front in the book represents the quiet tranquility of death Mm. whereas in the movie i think the quiet is a literal where it refers to the armistice has happened. Now the trenches are quiet. There's nothing going on. It forces you to look at the trenches, which haven't moved, meaning mm-hmm. that all this destruction, now that it's finally quiet, our main hero is dead, and nothing has been accomplished. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more metaphorical in the book, literal in the movie. And mm-hmm. and it being more literal in the movie, it's a little more, it hits home. A little harder, especially this goes to another difference in the film. Paul dies mere seconds before the armistice goes into effect at 11 p.m. or a.m. 11 a.m. 11 11 a.m. 11th of November. Yes. 1919. Right. Whereas in the book, he dies a month before the armistice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually, now that you talk about the very end, it's so 
devastating to see him sort of walk into the light mm-hmm. in a French trench. Yeah. <laughs> a French trench. <laughs> Hashtag French trench. Because he sees that it's almost reverted back to a game. And I think it's like the facial expression that you sort of watch play across his face as he's dying is he's going back to himself at 18 when he just started because everything around him is just sort I think, of I think stopped. earlier than that, 17. That's why 17? he needed to forge the signature. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You're right. So it's so it's so like surreal for him because 30 seconds before he was the enemy and he was pleading for his life. Yeah. And then as he's dying and walking out, because as far as the French soldiers know, like he might not be dying. He w- he's been run through with a bayonet. So he's bleeding, but he's not like, you know, missing an arm or something. Yeah. So it's not as apparent that he's dying or in his sort of final throes. Yeah. And so it's just psychologically really torturous to watch him because I think like, it's almost like the the end of a game of capture the flag with your friends or something where like it's really intense, but right before everyone was friends mm-hmm. and then right after nobody's trying to take you down. And right. so it's like he has this moment of like, oh, like in any other time, like I would just be going back to my friends. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's like, I'm dying and these people are like, they couldn't care less about where I am. It doesn't matter that I'm in a French trench. Like like a bunch of officers are just like cleaning their guns or yeah. having a glass of wine. And he's like the very last, you know, sacrifice. He just sits down and, and dies. Like it's just like that is so devastating. We also like watch Paul die. Whereas in the book, it's basically like, switches from first person to third person omniscient and says, you know, he fell in October of 1918, Mm -hmm. very much removed. So we get immersed back into Paul's life at that moment. It's, it's like very, very, very much more intense. Yeah. And in the book, he died seemingly with a smile, like he's welcoming death. Whereas in the movie, he's just completely deflated and devoid of any emotion. His eyes are closed and he's dead. Yeah, I think that's another thing, too, that's interesting about the book and the movie, how it's meant to humanize a group of soldiers. But oddly enough, it kind of works this magic trick where it also just fits them into a line of faceless deaths. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's really interesting how the author and the movie are able to do that. Agreed. Where you get so invested into these characters, and at the same time, you know, none of them are probably going to make it. Mm-hmm. And so it almost just creates this, like, distance between all of them, because you don't want to get too close. So that it just becomes this recurring story. Right. Something that the film was has been criticized for was focusing on spectacle over character work. But... Hmm. I would actually kind of disagree with that. Yes, his friends aren't given as much development as in the book, but I think the movie more than even more than the book really hammers home the love, non-romantic love between Paul and Cat. Yeah. And this is a perfect segue to talk about Cat in the film, played brilliantly by actor Albrecht Schuck, who is, hasn't starred in anything other than German films, so he's he's this is really uh, kickstarted possibly a breakout his role. international 
career. We both watched an interview with him. He speaks flawless English, better than we speak English, uh, which is common for Europeans. Um, But yeah, Cat in this movie is great. And the groundwork was laid in the novel, obviously. But this guy's performance is so flawless and instantly becomes a symbol of hope for Paul. And you really feel comfortable in his presence. Mm -hmm. Again, another one of my favorite scenes, not a battle scene, is when Cat gets a letter from his family and hands it to Paul. This is in between uh, moving between battlefields and Paul has to read it to him because Cat doesn't know how to read. He's Mm -hmm. illiterate, which, correct me if I'm wrong, was that in the novel? I don't... I don't remember that being in the novel, but if it's not, I feel like that's an argument against the criticism that That, there is not character work in the movie can you follow that line of thinking yeah and yeah look there's not a lot of scenes in the film where the characters chill out and talk and really delve into their backstories but that's part of what i admired about the film it doesn't dwell on anything i feel like every single war film even save it private ryan to bring that back Every single war film just has a boring part. They're, like, compelled to put in a scene where they, like, chill for 20 minutes. I'm thinking of the movie Fury, that tank movie that came out with Brad Pitt a few years ago. That has an extended section where they're just chilling with the family. you, You don't need that. You get to the point very quickly. Case in point, about midway through the film, the characters are on a mission to look for missing soldiers. And you think it's going to be this prolonged sequence where they just, you know, are walking, sauntering through a battlefield. But really, they just go into a compound, they find a room full of dead bodies, and they're like, oh, damn, these kids took off their masks too early. Gas masks. Yeah. And then that's it. It, it. it doesn't dwell on it. You get to the point and move on. This is one of the rare instances of a movie that's over two and a half hours that doesn't feel its length. I know that you felt the length a little bit, but I truly did not. The film is, yeah, two and a half hours and absolutely flies by. So much so that I'm a little pissed it wasn't nominated for best editing, Mm. even though everything everywhere all at once was going to win. Uh, It was inevitable and I think it deserved it. I at least think this movie should have been in that conversation. Yeah, I have a couple things to say about that. I Number one, I'm so glad that this is a year that a movie like this didn't sweep the Oscars because I feel like five, ten years ago, everything, everywhere, all at once just would not have even been mentioned. Yeah, and oh. I'm happy that that movie swept. I think this movie is incredible. Yeah. But I'm not fighting with you. I'm just saying, like, on a normal year, ten years ago, this movie would have swept if it had been like an American movie. Probably. Yes. Maybe, maybe not because it's a German film. The fact that this is but, an international film. And it won four Oscars. It, that's the most Oscars an international film has won uh, tied with Parasite and then mm. also Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right. So, yeah. so, but I'm saying like any other year, had this been an American movie about World War One, it probably would have swept. So I am yeah. really happy that everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm not saying we're post-racial society, but I'm just saying like, that's a wonderful swap, I think. Yeah. That was the first thing I was going to say. Second thing I was going to say, I might go into a rant at some point but i think that the criticism of people who say that this movie doesn't get into character work is extremely surface level here's why go off 
sis. <laughs> in the book, you claim you've read the book. Yes. Not you. These people who criticize. Oh, yes. But <laughs> no, I read you've it. read the book. I read it. You read it. I know how to read. Wait a second. <laughs> He's getting <laughs> awfully defensive. No, so you, so you, you claim you read the book, mm-hmm. and you're criticizing the movie because there's not character work in it. Okay, there are explicit points in the movie where Paul talks about the fact that they don't talk about their home lives because these kids were so young mm-hmm. that they don't have an identity outside of being a school kid. Yes. They don't have wives. They never had a job. They barely know who they are. Right. And so not only do they not have a lot of identity outside of like a, a home, like a family life mm-hmm. with their parents and maybe siblings, they are so immersed. And again, this is explicit in the book. They're so immersed in this traumatic experience that talking about anything before the war doesn't feel important. It's like, it's not a part of them. And Paul multiple times talks about having this out of body experience of actually, I'll give you an example. He talks about how there's a stack of poems that he wrote in his desk at home. Mm. And he thinks about that. And he's like, that just doesn't feel like my life. Like there's this drawer in my desk full of sheets of paper that I used to write poetry on. And that's such a peaceful space yeah. versus what I'm experiencing now. And so it doesn't, he doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about his maybe enjoyment or his passion for writing poetry because that's not who he is in this context. And so that's not how these characters relate while they're on the front with each other, while they're on the front lines. They talk about, in fact, another one of the first things that I noted about the book is right off the bat, they focus on visceral functions, eating, smoking, shitting, pissing, stomach, intestines, farting, these (laughs) bodily experiences, because that's the only thing that they can relate to, not only with each other, but inwardly. They can't really let themselves get too sentimental about home because a lot of these men know that they're not going home. They're not making it. So I would attack the core argument that there's not character work because I think that's the point in the book is that they can't connect on a personal level with these people Mm -hmm. because all they have to connect to is their traumatic experience. Yeah. That's a null argument. Yeah. Thank you for supporting me. Yeah. As my partner, as my wife, (laughs) as my podcast co-host. Yeah. As my comrade in battle. As my co-parent. Yeah. Just kidding. This is, <laughs> um, not, a, this is not a pregnancy yeah. announcement. But something <laughs> I think the book does very well is also highlight the fact that they can't value each other's lives because they sometimes when soldiers die, that means they get their stuff. Mm-hmm. And when soldiers die, that's less soldiers to feed, meaning they get more food. Mm-hmm. And... This is something that the book focuses on more and the movie really doesn't at all, which is another reason, I would say valid reason, why book purists might have a problem with the film. Because it's just different themes. 
it's also a different psychological discussion. Mm. The book opens up with Paul witnessing his friend die slowly from an amputation. And he's sad for his friend, but he's also grappling with the fact that, oh, I get to have his shoes. Yeah. I get to have his boots. That's like really good for me because I've been in the trenches and my feet have been soaked for a year. Yeah. The movie doesn't really focus on that. There's a scene towards the end of the movie where they're hungry and they go into the uh, camp and a cook has a bunch of soup and they want some soup. But there's no really discussion or there's no themes of like, we can get this now because other people are dead. It's It doesn't really cover that. So that's another instance where I think it's a big change and perhaps the movie isn't necessarily a good adaptation but it is a good representation of war as well as it being just a spectacle so well to your point i would argue that we watch paul go through that realization because in the first attack his friend is killed and the only real the only reason he realizes that is because he steps on his glasses. Right. And he realizes that the only way that these could be sitting in the mud shattered is if his friend had been basically shot through the head. Yeah. So he, we, the audience watches Paul realize that he, for his own survival and his own mental ability to stay in the war and not defect, which would mean he'd probably get shot anyway as a traitor. Mm Mm-hmm is to remove himself personally from the people that he's serving with. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't understand that argument. Again, I think that's null. I think they're just saying, well, that scene is in the book. It's not in the movie. Okay, well, look at the spirit of things mm-hmm. that we do get on this visual medium exactly. and, and audio medium because we hear him step on the glasses. Exactly. Like, And stuff like that makes his friendship with Kat even more meaningful because... The war is designed to remove your soul and any comradeship mm-hmm. between uh, soldiers. But he still maintains this intense friendship with Kat. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this. I just think it's very effective. And we don't see this a lot. Like a solid love between two men that's not romantic. Mm. I completely agree. And the... It makes the end so much more devastating. And I think the only reason that it ha- that this relationship forms or calcifies between Paul and Kat is because is purely because they are the two that are together for the longest. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that they're building a deep personal connection. It's just that they've almost been exposed to each other and given these sort of glimpses of like humanity that kind of just knits their mm-hmm. future together. Yeah. And that's why it's obviously so devastating that Paul tries so hard to save Kat's life and he gets him to the hospital and the nurse is like, why'd you even bother with this dead motherfucker? Yeah, he like was, he's gone. He he's dead definitely you dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they do have a really wonderful relationship that's, I think, purely just because of the visual medium is more fully realized in the movie. And like you were talking about, Albrecht... Shook. Shook is my new celebrity crush. He's He's, so good at acting. He's great. He is such a uh, presence. hugely, 
Yes. And by the way, Felix Kammerer is also great. This was his first film. Yeah. Believe it or not. He's 27. That's nuts. Yeah, he's he looks younger, younger than us. But yeah. He does look, he's a very, yeah, he definitely has a young face, but what an incredible actor. Right. But yeah, I mean, there was Oscar consideration for both Felix and for Albrecht. I'm surprised Albrecht didn't squeak in. I'm surprised mm. more people didn't talk about him. Again, this movie didn't really gain a lot of traction until after it was nominated for nine Oscars. Case mm. in point, us watching it after the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I gotta admit, I knew the movie would be good, but I was, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, look, this is the third adaptation of this novel. What more could it have to say about war? I mean, we have the movie 1917, which is pretty great. I mean, do we really need another World War I movie? And after it garnered a bunch of nominations, I'm like, oh, great. I'm sure it's a good movie, but did it deserve to beat out a bunch of other films? But then, of course, we watched the film. And it's great. And at the Oscars, I wanted Tar to win Best Cinematography because Mm -hmm. it was a miracle it was nominated in the first place. And I think that truly was the best of the five nominations. Top Gun should have won, but it wasn't nominated. (laughs) So there's that. Yeah, sure. Another war movie. Yeah. But of the nominations, even though I'm a little upset Tar lost, James Friend's cinematography in this movie immaculate yeah he had the luxury to shoot on location in uh, prague they went to military training fields 200 soccer fields worth of ground to uh make their own trenches Mm. so that was all real trench work no cgi involved with that and another reason I think it won best production design over babylon which was the heavy favorite is because which is another reason I won the Oscar yeah. pool. I keep bringing that up. Sorry. Netflix really has it in the bag. They release behind the scenes mm. featurettes for their movies now. Yeah. Which harkens back to the days of DVD features. Like yeah. that's coming back. Yeah. That's something that streaming doesn't allow right. until Netflix until started doing these featurettes. Yeah. So yeah, we got to hand it to Netflix. I think, I can't prove this, but I think a big reason why it won best production design is because that is heavily featured in the making of little mm. featurette they have it's incredible the, the i mean they built a battlefield and it it really immerses you in there on the flip side of this i'm not necessarily disparaging stage work because i work in that field specifically in led volumes and for all the train scenes, they shot that on an LED soundstage. I yeah. had no idea. So all the scenes with Daniel Bruhl, yeah. uh, he didn't go to Prague at all. Uh, he was in London where the volumes, these volumes were. Yeah. So I was going to say, I was going to say, well, where are the LED volumes in the world? Because there aren't that many. Right. There's, yeah, there's LA, London. Australia, Australia. Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> Nant Studios just opened up a new volume. So yeah. a plug for my studio. Yeah. yeah. Very few. No, it's really interesting. And I think that's another reason why this movie in particular was, it was right to do a German telling of this. Yes. Because I also felt similarly about this movie when it came out. I was like, all right, I've seen Saving Private Ryan. I've seen Dunkirk. I've seen 1917. Mm. I've seen a lot of these immersive war films and have been, I would say, numbed 
Yeah. I, I'm a little bit put off by a massively expensive meditation on how futile war is. Right. Because I've identified as a pacifist for a long time. And don't get me started about how I feel about the American military complex. I obviously think the people at the top are always exploiting the people at the bottom. Like, I I kind of get the idea behind this. Right. Like, I, I get it. I agree. Yeah. And I kind of feel like making another movie about, like, white people experiencing war like this, I'm just like, I get it. Like, I've seen it. But I do think that the added value to this is actually almost exposure therapy by filming it on site. Mm-hmm. And using German actors, mm-hmm. I think like it adds, it does add a layer of realistic depth and a feeling that maybe the trauma of this war is not put to rest. Yeah. Because like I was in Belgium last November, just a few months ago, and you can tour Ardennes, the Ardennes forest. Like yeah. you can go to fields that still have bomb blasts clearly visible in the landscape. I mean, you can go to London and sometimes even bombs are still from World War One or World War Two, like live bombs are still <laughs> discovered in the middle of London or yeah. Belgium. Like sometimes forget that piece because this was a hundred years ago. And sure. and even World War Two is becoming further and further removed because like my grandfather's served in World War II and Vietnam, but they're both dead. And so, like, you kind of forget how actually recent, especially in America, considering those wars didn't take place on American soil, Mm -hmm. are. Yeah. And so sometimes, like, it is a good reminder that people who live in those landscapes still actually can almost feel that sense of unrest. Mm -hmm. And especially now, I guess, with the unrest in Russia and places in the Middle East where there's still like a lot of political um, upheaval, it's a good reminder of what can happen when you don't pay attention to these continuous patterns. And let your ego and pride take over. Mostly it's guys at the top who don't want to be told that their dicks are small, but... Yeah. But like, you know, continuing pattern, right? Amen. (laughs) Gotta learn from history or else we're destined to repeat it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not saying anything that like... I'm not saying anything groundbreaking, but for me, it is a good reminder that a lot of people do still live with like the the scars of what. Yeah. I mean, because it it is like it's kind of like the Titanic, where you start to think like it's hard to conceptualize the loss of life. Right. Like it's it's it really is hard to think about it unless it's shown to you either in historical footage or by this kind of like removed look at people who are real people and who really did die right and who are also multiplied by millions well that's why i valued the movie going experience over reading the novel because you can hear about it it's like okay death destruction i get it but then to see it with the gravitas and the exceptional filmmaking behind it not only is it just a spectacle to see but it also hammers home that point that we're still that it was truly horrific. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to see it. Yeah. So, yeah, I completely agree. There, Just to finish this thought, because it sparked a memory of something that I noticed in the movie, I appreciate 
that there is an interplay between not only this war and wars in the future. And you talked about how this movie pays homage to films of Christopher Nolan. Yeah, like Dunkirk. You mentioned that. Yeah. Right. It looks and, very similar. Yeah. And and even the sound design yeah. is really similar to Dunkirk, and especially 1917, because obviously it's the same war, just a different side. Yeah. Um, so something that I noticed immediately, and tell me if you noticed this too about this movie, but the ties and the homages paid to Apocalypse Now, yep. my God, well done. I just have to applaud Edward Berger for, or Edward Berger, yeah. for yeah. his key scenes of the meals mm-hmm. that the colonels are eating. Because that, I literally wrote a paper when I was in college about the imagery behind the meals that people eat at different points during Apocalypse Now to sort of show the differences in level Mm. um, in the military. Right. And so the whole thing about leaving uneaten food on plates, feeding... Their dogs. The dogs with with meat off the bone. Just being, you know, throwing, (laughs) um, throwing wine on the floor... Right. When the, by the way, bald Colonel also was kind of like a ding, 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 Colonel Kurtz. Yeah, yeah. Like, (laughs) connection right there, too. All of that excess was such a direct influence from Apocalypse Now. And I think, again, that interplay between this war that happened almost 100 years ago and the 1970s and the 1990s and the Gulf War and now in Russia and Ukraine and places in Israel with unrest. Like, it's very insightful to make those historical connections to show that a lot of times the people at the top are not the ones that are making decisions and calling shots are not the ones who are actually experiencing the trauma of fighting. Preach. And speaking of bald, gluttonous generals and allusions to Apocalypse Now and Denis Villeneuve, friggin' Dune. Oh, with, yeah. Yeah, Dune yes. had multiple direct allusions to Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse, yeah. Apocalypse Now is in again. Well, it's um, always been in. But... I, will, I will say Apocalypse Now has been in my top 10 favorite movies since I saw it, uh, like, 10, 12 years ago or something like that. It's, if you haven't seen Apocalypse Now, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is an amazing movie, but Apocalypse Now is one of the best films ever made. I mean, I think that's, art is subjective, but that's kind of an objective. (laughs) But if I could mansplain a second. Yeah. Yeah. There's not any more differences between the book and the movie other than Cat's death. In the book, he dies from shrapnel Uh, He has some shrapnel in his leg, and then Paul is carrying him to the field infirmary, and on route, another piece of shrapnel goes into Kat's brain. Paul doesn't realize it until he goes there. In the film, it's a little bit different. There's one scene early in the film where they go into a French farm and steal a goose. Later on in the film, they go back to that same farm, and it's kind of like, okay, this is the end of the second act. I wonder where this is going. Obviously, someone's going to die here, and it's not going to be Paul. So uh, they go back to the same farm. They get caught. They run away, and the son of the French farmer follows them and shoots Cat as he's taking a piss in the woods. So he shoots him through the stomach, through the liver, 
that creates black blood. Apparently, you get black blood by being shot in the liver. The bile that comes out from that. So, uh, yeah, he brings... Probably blood poisoning. Yeah, yeah. right. It, that's what the doctor said. That, yeah. that wound literally poisoned the body because the, the liver, the detoxing organ was leaking. leaking. Um, yeah, gross. So, that's different. But in both, both instances, it kind of shows the useless, futile, stupid... Mm aspect of war that you can just die not even in battle right in the book he w- he was off the battle site not even engaged in combat still died from shrapnel and then in the in the film it's like he's not fighting but he's he invaded a farmhouse and he's you know invading the country so you know there's a i was gonna say tell me if this is a bit of a stretch but it is reminiscent a little bit of Colonel Kilgore in Apocalypse Now because it's basically like in removing him from American quote-unquote civilized society, he just decides that everything goes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good way of reminding viewers that while we want to humanize the German side because they were being used, the German soldiers because they're being used by this military complex... They kind of also forget that it's not okay to just go on to a French farmer's land, land yeah. and like steal a goose. Like yeah. that's not you wouldn't. You're, that's not okay, you know. Right. And it's like kind of a good way of showing that they're still doing something bad. But right. but but again, like he dies because he stole a goose. Like right. where's and, the justice in that? You know. Right, and you know it's like. I think Eric Maria or Mark would say like these soldiers were hungry and they right. they would either starve to death or that you know they're kind of pushed into these acts of vagrancy while not in combat. So yeah, yeah I mean yeah, it's complicated. A very complicated issue. In any case, all the characters die. War is not uh, meant the answer. to be. Yeah. <laughs> ever. Uh, Violence is not the answer yep, ever, agreed. unless you're fighting back. No, right. Never mind. I'm yeah. a pacifist. I don't believe. That. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. Um, like a lot of war films, I just need to put this out there. There is a part of my caveman brain that loves seeing fighting and explosions and tanks and flamethrowers. Interesting. I don't have that. <laughs> yep. I wonder where that comes from. But I really admired that. And that- certainly I don't expect anyone to enlist <laughs> after seeing this movie, whether Good. no matter country, what country you're in. Um, but yeah, uh, I think totally deserving of the four Oscars it won, Best International Film. I think if Decision to Leave was in that category, it would have had stiff competition, but that film wasn't even nominated. So yeah, give Best International to this film. Uh, Best Cinematography, exceptional. Best Production Design, again, maybe Babylon should have won for all the sets they created, but I, I I stand by All Quiet's win. And then Best Score, which we've heaped the praise. The only other major contender for this award, again, was Babylon. Hurwitz was nominated, but he's he has two Oscars, so he doesn't need yeah, get another out of here. one. He doesn't need another one. So I'm happy for Vocal Bertman's uh, win. Uh, this score is incredible. And it's more than the three-note motif. A lot of people <laughs> have been like blaring that, and we made fun of it a little bit. But it does have some great compositions throughout. Really eerie, really emotional, really effective. So, yeah, I'm happy as like you are that everything everywhere won but 
as before, I was a little peeved that this was nominated for a bunch of awards, including Best Picture. Now I get it, and I really appreciate it, and I kind of want to watch it again. Well, yeah, maybe I'm biased about the production design win. Yeah. But think about this, too. Like, I, I remember hearing you and our good friend Natalie talking about how using LED volumes and LED technology period at this time is still fairly experimental. You really need to understand the technology to use it effectively in movies Mm -hmm. and learning that they did not use it for something like a battle scene, but they used it for something that's used to create depth and also was moving for the most part, which means that it, you can project something that's not clear or it's, it's blurry obviously because it's in the background Mm -hmm. is a really, it's an interesting thing for the Academy to recognize yeah. because I don't think that many of them would necessarily know what a smart choice that is Mm -hmm. from a technical standpoint. So it's interesting that they not only nominated it, but voted for it to win because mm-hmm. it is a smart way of using technology, regardless of the fact, regardless, I guess, if they knew what goes into that choice. Yeah. But it was smart. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, it was applauded for it. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Final ratings for both the book and the movie. Let's bring the season opener of Series 9 home. Okay. I I would give both the book and the movie three and a half stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have too much of a complaint with the book. The, it's, it's another one of our more literary choices. We talked about that also in our passing episode, that there's a reason that this book has endured Mm -hmm. and it didn't disappoint when I went back, knowing it was a classic to read it for the first time. Mm -hmm. The syntax is very distinct. I think... The translation does a good job at translating German, which is a very straightforward language. They use very simple syntax in here. Well done. Like Hemingway. Actually, very similar to Hemingway. Good point. Um, Something I didn't get to talk about too much in the episode, so I won't dwell on it, but remarks effective use of contrasts like... Old versus young, poor versus rich, life versus death, home versus the front lines, quiet versus loud. All of that is a really effective way of using the written language to show sort of what a precipice Paul is at in the middle of these things. However, there is not a lot of plot. (laughs) Right. And so I did find myself losing focus. Oh, yeah throughout different parts of the book just because I think its greatest strength can also be its greatest weakness that like we're supposed to humanize Paul but we're also supposed to see him as a faceless soldier and that kind of got a little bit boring for me so three and a half for me as well try try listening I know you're the plot guy yeah um so three and a half out of four Movie three and a half out of four, just because I did feel the length a little bit in the theater. There was a there was a moment when I hit a wall and I just kind of wanted to go home. <laughs> maybe oh. maybe I was just a little bit like sensory overload, and that yeah. happens to me really easily when I go to movies. Like it doesn't really matter what movie I go to, I just feel uncomfortable because I don't 
like being in enclosed spaces with other people that when it's dark. So, you know, that could be kind of a personal thing. But yeah, I just, there were moments where I felt the length. Yeah. But that's fair. overall, I still, obviously, throughout this episode, I've talked about how much I enjoyed the majority of it. So yeah. three and a half out of five yeah. feels right for me. Yeah. The book for me, and this frequently happens, is something that I admired more than I enjoyed. And again, I'm not saying that this book was released for it to be enjoyed. Sure. But I don't think listening to it in audiobook form, being a plot guy, was the right <laughs> decision. Hmm. I should have been... I should have actually read it because maybe I would have been sucked in a little bit more. It's very easy with an audiobook to space out and to not listen at all for large stretches. Mm. And I very frequently would have to rewind it. But in terms of the cultural significance, in terms of the uh, prose, of the elegance of the piece, of the influence, I really value it. It's obviously classic literature. So four stars in that regard, but two stars for enjoyment. That creates six stars divided by two <laughs> is three stars for the book. Okay, that's yeah. fair. I feel like it should be lower, but it, I can't deny how much. This like truly is a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, the film is an, an obvious four to four for me. It's one of my favorite of 2022. Yeah, it, late favorite. Yeah, late yeah. favorite. I did not feel the length at all. I think if it was a few minutes longer... That would have been overload. Mm. But it was like the Goldilocks scenario where it felt epic, but not too long. Mm. Yeah, solid. I think Edward Berger should have been nominated for Best Director, too, over like mm-hmm. Ruben Ostlund for uh, Triangle of Sadness. I think mm. I, I I would have swapped those, those two nominations. So, yeah, exceptional piece. I can't wait to revisit it, which is a strange thing to say about a depressing World War One film. But there we go. Thank you so much for listening. We have a lot of killer choices for this season. We can't wait. We'll be back next week with another classic film. Uh, You might have heard of it. Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. (laughs) Help is on the way, dear. These two movies could not be further apart. Yeah, great, great double billing. All Quiet and Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that movie. So we'll see you next week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Peace.